prayer, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into the sermon. Father God, thank you for who you are. Lord, the last song we just sang is, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. I pray that this would be true of our own hearts, that we would be thirsty for you. That we would long to meet with you and long to worship you in the presence of others. That we would long to know you and who you are. I pray that anywhere in our lives where this has not been true, Lord, that you would cause us to repent and to, to move towards you and not away from you. And Father, Lord, as we uh, end our sermon series this morning on, on living a better life, a, a well-lived life, Father, I pray that you would encourage each of us here. And remind us who we are in Christ and the power that lies before us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, if you're not familiar with your scriptures, somewhere around, around uh, just uh, right of middle, uh, the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be right there, uh, right there at the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, this is the last series, the uh, last sermon in a, in, a, in a group of series called uh, uh, Life Well Lived, in which we've been uh, working towards defining and understanding what it means to live life to the fullest, what it means to live life well. Uh, so we began by the beginning of the year looking at Second uh, uh, Timothy and understanding that uh, if we're going to live life well, it means it's going to look a lot like pursuing godliness, pursuing godliness. And then from there we, we looked at how we're to do this and, and understanding that the Bible is our source for a well-lived life. And then we looked at prayer and understanding that the Lord of heaven and earth longs commune with us, longs to talk with us, prayer being the lifeline of a well-lived life. And last week we looked at stewardship, understanding that you and I actually own nothing, but rather that we're managers of God's creation. This is not ours, this is His. And so if we're going to live a well-lived life, then we will understand that and operate in the way that He's actually commanded us, to live open-handedly with the blessings He's given us. There's many more spiritual disciplines that we uh, can, can talk to, but for sake of brevity, uh, let me just list them out here and you can go study them on your own. In a, in a world in which we have been addicted to noise, perhaps we should study more on silence and solitude, which the church has long reflected as one of the core spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Evangelism is another spiritual discipline that, that we could mention in this series. Fellowship with the, the Lord's church is another spiritual discipline that is today by and large abandoned. And therefore, a lot of Christians walking around actually aren't sure how to actually live the Christian life because they've separated the Christian life from Christian fellowship. But I want to land this morning the, the, the plane of this sermon series on abiding. Uh, the means of a life well lived. My hope my goal out of this morning's message is to get you to see, to get us to see, that the only way to live a life well lived is to daily believe in Jesus. It's as simple as that. Daily believe in Jesus. And I think the book in the New Testament that most deals with this idea of daily faith and daily living in Christ is the gospel of John, the Gospel of John, if you're familiar with the Scriptures, uh, it, it's different from the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in that, the, the more than 90% of its material is unique. 
John's gospel does not focus on miracles or parables and public speeches that are so prominent in the other accounts instead. The gospel of John emphasizes the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and how we, as believers, should respond to all of his teachings. Of all the gospels and all the New Testament books, the gospel of John most clearly teaches the deity and the pre-existence of Christ. And John portrays Jesus as the eternal word of God who became flesh to redeem his people from their sins. And so understand that we're going to dive into John 15. And let me set the stage a little bit about why John actually wrote his gospel. He actually tells us why in the end of his gospel, right there near the end, in John 20. Uh, this is what he says. Verse 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, so, so John is saying, he's written everything in this book. He says there's a lot more that we could have written about, that we could have included in this documentary of Jesus' life. We didn't, but everything that is here is for two things. One, to show you that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the primary reason that John has spent his time writing down in his gospel what he did is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is no mere mortal man like you and I. He was God in the flesh. He was the Son of God. This truth is so seeped into John's life. He's writing about it, what he's seen and what he's heard, in order to convince you and I sitting here today, 2,000 years later, that everything he's saying is true. He wants you to believe this. It's massively important in understanding how we're to read everything else that John writes in this gospel. Because it's through everything that he's writing, he's constantly trying to point you to understand that Jesus is not what you think. He's not a regular man. He's, he's the Christ. And, but there's also another reason there he mentions. He says, number two, that you would have life in his name. That is, that John is writing because he believes that the only way, the only way, which you can truly have life is in Jesus Christ and in his name. Let's unpack this for a minute because this plays massively into our theme of a life well lived. What John is saying is that those outside of Christ do not have real life. This means that it is possible to exist as a human but not have life, not real life. Life comes when you believe in Christ. Life does not come when you hit a certain salary. Life does not come when you have a certain number of children or grandchildren. Life does not come when you throw aside the shackles of whatever it is that is binding you down. Life only comes when you believe in Jesus Christ. So knowing that, let us turn to our passage this morning, John 15. John chapter 15. If you're there, say amen. If you, if you need more time, say hold up. John 15, let's go verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his house. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whenever, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The overwhelming theme of John's word in this passage is for you and I to abide in Christ. He says this multiple different times and in multiple different ways. Just listen. Verse 3, abide in me. Verse 4, abiding in Christ produces much fruit. Verse 7, abiding in Christ leads to answered prayers. Verse 9, abide in my love. Verse 10, abiding in his love produces right living. Verse 15, abiding in Christ elevates your status from servant to friends. And so this is the overwhelming theme of John's word. What Christ wants you to hear this morning is that you must abide in him. So then, pastor, what is abide? We can see it's massively important here. We usually don't talk about this in the Christian life, do we? Think about it. When was the last time you had a struggle with your faith? Like a real struggle, existential crisis of faith. Maybe I don't even believe the gospel anymore, Pastor. Where did you go in your mind? Did you go to abiding in Christ in the here and now? Or did you go to perhaps, well, you know, Pastor, I was baptized on such and such a date. Or I was saved on uh, such and such a time. So many times we try to think and point to a one-time decision of faith in Christ and not look for the act of abiding in Christ in the here. And now you see the word Christ is using here, abide, it's the Greek word meno throughout this passage, which means to, to, to abide. It's almost like the translators got it right. Or to remain, to stay, to continue, to endure. You see, the great work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is not a one-time thing. It's not a flash in the pan. It's a constant, persistent, never-ending abiding. So what does John mean here? What is it then to abide in Christ? Remember, the reason why John is writing, he's writing all of this, John 15 included, so that you will believe in Christ, so that you believe in Jesus, so that you will have life because you believe in Jesus. Throughout the Gospel of John, we find that what John wants is for you to believe in Christ. John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So then abiding in Jesus, friends, means remaining in Jesus. Abiding in Jesus means to come to Jesus and to receive something from him. John 6, 35, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, abiding in Jesus then is believing, trusting, and receiving him. So if we're going to live a life well lived, then it's only going to be done when we abide in him. This means that we're going to to believe in him, in Jesus, the Christ. Now, I'm currently working on a sermon series for possibly the summer or fall uh, on the distinction between knowledge and faith. Like, Like how much certainty do we need in order to consider ourselves Christians? I guess I'm pretty excited about the stuff that I'm, I'm wrestling through, but, but for today, let's be clear. Belief in Jesus is not belief in a theoretical concept. Belief in Jesus is not merely head knowledge, but about real-life transformation. I read a book this week called Beloved Community in which it's looking at the, the, how the, the civil rights movement of the 60s, uh, how it began, how it ended, how it petered out, and one thing the author is continually making clear is the, 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 the push for social justice and the end slavery in this country in all of its forms began as a church movement, and a movement of the people of God longing for God to do something and to push back the evils that they saw in the world. And that worked great until about the uh, late 60s. And then all this movement, all this hoorah that the civil rights movement had built up began to peter out. And the author makes the claim, the thesis of the book, is that it shifted from a, a religious thing, from a, a human rights uh, dig- dignity thing, to more of a political realm. And he says what happened is uh, the, 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 the people who were pushing began to care more and more less about actual poor people and actual people in dire straits, but rather simply about theories This is is the line that's been rattling around in my head all week. He said this. He says, disengagement from practice produces theoretical hallucinations. I'll say it again. Disengagement from practice produces theoretical hallucinations. I say all that to say this. When we unplug Jesus from our everyday life, we begin to make Jesus in our own image. So we can't just say, well, believe in Jesus without a sense of a grounding. Which Jesus are we believing in? This is a massively important question in our pursuit of godliness and a life that is pleasing to John or to God. And John says in uh, verse 4, he said, listen, he says, abide in me and I in you. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. You see, Jesus links our abiding in him with an abiding in his words, with an abiding in his love. Notice this. This is not a theoretical abiding in some ethereal Jesus out there, which does not have grounding in reality in the here and now. He says that abiding in him looks and feels like abiding in his words and abiding in his love. This means receiving the love of Jesus for the Father, And receiving the love of Jesus for his people. And the joy that Jesus has in the Father. And the joy that Jesus has in us. It means that we are to share in this joy, this love, and these words with Jesus. Paul says something similar in Romans. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. 
so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Or, or in Romans, uh, another place, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Our belief in Jesus, then, is grounded in the words of Scripture and overflows into our love towards Him and towards other people. You see how wonderful and beautiful this actually is? It means that we do not have a veneer of Christian faith, but that our understanding and our knowledge, our head knowledge should be deep. We do not want a superficial understanding of this great God so that when we're pressed with logical and well-reasoned questions, we simply shrug our shoulders and say, well, just have faith, brother. We should be able to think deeply and critically about why it is we say the things that we believe in. We need to reclaim the, uh, the truth that all truth is God's truth. And that as Christians, we have no need to fear knowledge and understanding. But this doesn't mean that we become highbrow, looking down our noses, living in ivory tower type of Christians. Goodness gracious. If in our deep exploration of the things of God, we lose a fundamental grip of how God wants to actually use that deep knowledge and growing in grace to transform our lives more into the image of Christ and love of those around us, then friends, we've missed the point entirely. All of our understanding of Christ, who he is, what he's done, should propel us in our walk with Christ and with others. In a sense, we should then be contradictions of what the world labels as Christianity. You see, the world labels Christianity in one of two categories. Either deep spirituality, go by the seat of their pants, feeling Christians, or the theological-minded, high-browed, living in ivory tower Christians. We should at the same time be deep thinkers of God and yet wild lovers of God. Are you with me? We should be deep intellectuals of God, and yet at the same time we should be wild and extravagant lovers of God. Like every one of our services here at this church, every one of our future coming small groups, every time you get together with one another, you should be paradoxes blowing the world's mind. This place should explode every time we sing praises to God because our hearts are so full of the experience of God's grace in our life and goodness in our lives that we just can't hold it in. And sometimes we just got to lift our hands and praise the king who is worthy of it all. And listen, I long for the day when the Lord either calls one of y'all to come up here and leave worship or, or gives us someone to leave worship so I can sit. Because it's a really hard to lift my hands and praise to God and stay on the strumming pattern. I would much rather be in the congregation yelling, Amen, than being up here. And this place, on the other hand, should be so deep in the knowledge of God that many of you become teachers of Calvary Foundations or leaders in children's church. You know, I hate the fact that the modern American church has reduced children's ministry to simply a thing for women to do. We should take seriously the commands of God to teach our kids diligently the things of God. Like There ought to be a waiting list. Listen, there ought to be a waiting list for you to sign up to teach children's church. That's what I mean when I say we should be walking paradoxes. You see, we should be both intellectually and impassioned. We should be both scholarly and spontaneous. We should be both Baptist and Pentecostal. 
We should be both psychological and passionate. We should be rational and roused. Because when you are abiding in Christ, friends, you are receiving the joy, the words, and the love of Jesus. And the proof, then, that you are abiding in Christ is whether or not this, true, whether or not this is true in your life. If what Christ wants to give you is actually flowing through your veins. Look again at the first four verses of this chapter. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. You see, the, the proof, the proof is in the fruit pudding. The proof is in the fruit pudding. Abiding in Christ is an attachment to Him through belief in Him and all that believing in Him then we receive from Him. You see, the proof that we have actually received from Him then becomes our fruit. So you see, Christ, He says, I am the vine. God the Father is the vine dresser. That's what verse 1 says. So then you as a Christian are plugged into Christ because you are plugged into Christ, then you receive from him the ability to produce the fruit of a Christian's life. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Remember, God the Father is the vine dresser. He's glorified when you and I bear fruit. When our lives begin to look like Christ, when we think like Jesus thought, when we love the poor and oppressed, like Jesus loved the poor and oppressed, when we bear with one another, even though you get under our skin. It is in bearing fruit that we prove that we are actually attached to Christ. The negative of this is true, too. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like the branches and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burning. saying, if you do not bear fruit in your life, then you are proving that you are not in Christ. You prove that you're not actually abiding in Him. You're fooling yourself. That's what John is saying. But let's look at this specific fruit that Jesus mentions here at the end. Look at, look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Do you see it? It's as if Jesus knew his disciples would be sitting there listening to all this talk about abiding and, and listening and bearing fruit. It's almost as if he knew his disciples would be like, is, is he talking about me? Am I bearing fruit? How do I know if I'm bearing fruit? And so Jesus gives them a sort of litmus test here. And this is the greatest Christian ethic as well. He says, he says this, love one another. So do you? Do you love one another. Again, don't, don't make this an ethereal idea. Oh, I love someone out there. Yeah, I love all the people. No, no, look around the room. 
Do you love one another? Think of the people you interact with on a day-to-day basis. Do you love them? Not simply what they can do for you or get for you, but do you truly love them? Do you consider them your friends? As Christians, I feel we're very quick to look at these types of scriptures. We look at our own lives and we say, well, pastor, I can't live like that. This one particular person just ticks me off. So I guess it's a good thing Christ has forgiven me, pastor. And that's it. And we walk away. It's it's where it ends. We don't look at this in our lives and lament the fact that we don't love other people. We're We're quick to say things like, well, Jesus was God in the flesh, pastor. Of course he could love everybody. Listen, dear brother, sister, you have God dwelling inside of you. Very quickly, let me give you four. There are many other passages I could point to. Let me give you four places from the scripture that declare that you and I have actually been empowered. We can love one another because of the fact that Christ is in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Paul talking to the Corinthian church. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul argues that your body is the temple and the Holy Spirit lives within you. Your body is like the temple of the Old Testament, which was the place where God dwelt and where men and women went to visit with their God. You no longer need to go to a temple to meet with your God because your body is the temple in which God resides. The Spirit is in you. Romans 8, 2, number 2. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul argues in Romans that it is because Christ is in you that you can indeed walk in the Spirit and live a life of righteousness. That person who ticks you off, you actually have within you the ability to truly love them. Number three, 2 Corinthians 4, 6-7. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, in 2 Corinthians, the argument is that as believers, you and I who profess faith in Christ, believe in all that he has done, you and I are earthen vessels. And yet inside of these broken, cracked earthen vessels is the precious treasure, which is Christ. Number four, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul does not say, I live in a Christ-like way. Paul does not say, I glorify Christ through my behavior, but rather he says, Christ lives in me showing that Christ lives in his believers. And because he lives in us, the Christian life then is not a matter of merely trying to behave like Christ, but actually allowing Christ to live through us. Going back to John 15 here, he says, Abide in me and I in you. Verse 4. He says, Whoever abides in me and I in him. Verse 5. Verse 16, he says, I chose you, appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Dear brother and sister, if you believe in Christ, if you're abiding in Christ, then you must realize that the greatest exchange in this abiding is the fact not that we abide in him, but rather that he abides in us. 
Let me close with give you three implications of this. Number one, since Christ lives in us, there is therefore now no condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Before the holy and living and just God, Christ has paid for your sins and my sins. And because of that, we now stand free before the King of kings and Lord of lords. No condemnation. You say, well, I walked in here with all kinds of baggage, Pastor. You have no idea about. Yeah, that's right. I don't have any idea. But you know who does? God, the one who made you. The one who's forgiven you in Christ. Because Christ lives in us, there is therefore now no condemnation. Number two, since Christ lives in us, there is no one who can separate us from Him. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, well, Pastor, what about my own screw-ups in Christ? I think Paul assumed that. The reason he lists so much is that you would have a pressing understanding that it doesn't matter from now on in Christ you are forgiven. You are made free. Therefore, nothing can separate you from him. Nothing. Number three. Since Christ lives in us, we have been empowered to bear fruit. And in so doing, we've been empowered to live a life well lived. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So how are you doing? Truly, honestly, not ethereal, but practically in the here and now. How did you do yesterday? How are you going to do tomorrow? Are you abiding in Him? Do you really believe that the God of all heaven and earth actually loves you? Have you believed in his words? His words that say things like, come and cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Do you love one another? Truly, deeply, meaningfully, not superficially. True love. That's a litmus test. A Christian, that's the ultimate litmus test. It's not, do you agree with this, this, and this? That's not the ultimate test of a Christian. The ultimate test of a Christian is, do you love one another? Yes, right beliefs matter. Yes, right knowledge matters. But not more than loving one another. The fact that you know, that you know the right things will work itself out in the actual here and now of love for one another. 
Let's not fool ourselves. The civil rights movement petered out because it became more about theory and less about practice. I wonder if the same might be said of your Christian walk. When you first began walking with Christ, you were all in the here and now. You were looking at your sins every time you stumbled, every time you failed, and be like, oh, forgive me, Father. We'll try harder. You should try harder. And then rest in Christ every time you fail. But then as you begin to grow up in your Christian walk, it became more about actually less loving the people who are sitting right beside you right now. And more about just a general sense of love and wellness and peace. That's baloney. It's a Greek word for you. It's baloney. Friends, we need to abide in him. We need to believe his words. We need to love one another. Let's pray. Father God, we pursue a lot of things. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. All those things. We pursue families. We pursue jobs. We pursue uh, uh, love interests. We pursue community service, social justice. We pursue a lot of things, Father. But I pray that we would be more motivated to pursue godliness and Christ-likeness and actually walking this thing out that you've called us into so that we would actually live a life well lived. Father, we can't do it without you. Many have tried. Many are still trying and failing every day. We try to live life apart from abiding in you apart from your word, apart from prayer, apart from the fellowship, apart from evangelism. We try to do all these things outside of you, Father, but I pray that we would abide in you. And in our abiding of you, Father, that we may know eternal life and have it now, right now. And that we would be encouraged to put our hand to the work that you've called us to do, and wherever you've placed us. That you would raise up godly men and godly women who love you more than life itself. And through that, we might change the world. Not in theory, but in practice. And actually loving one another and actually serving one another here, now. For we only have one life to live, Father. I pray you would remind us of all these things in Christ's name. Amen. And I'm going to ask Philip and uh, Mar- uh